normally refer to as the first Thanksgiving, and, and it actually wasn't, but I don't have time to go into a lengthy history lesson, but the, the people who settled in Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts in the 1600s normally called the Pilgrims. They were a member of a religious group called, in England, they were called the Puritans because they wanted to purify the Church of England. When King Henry VIII had wanted to divorce one of his wives and the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce, he had declared England independent from the Catholic Church, but he had made himself one of the most wicked men to ever live. He was the head of the church, and he appointed bishops and priests who would do whatever he wanted. And the Puritans wanted to stick to a biblical standard. So they didn't recognize the authority of the king or the queen over the church. And they didn't recognize these corrupt bishops that had been appointed into the cathedrals all over England. So they started meeting in homes. And they started meeting in, in their own church buildings. And they stuck to a biblical standard of Christianity and worship and preaching and personal morality. And for that, they were hardly and abusively rejected in England. Sometimes as they were having church, people would come and throw rocks through their windows of their buildings. Sometimes their build, church buildings would be burned. A few of their pastors were tarred and feathered, which means people would bind them up and then pour boiling tar on them and then roll them in chicken feathers. Sometimes it killed them if the tar was hot enough. Sometimes it just disfigured them. So they fled to Holland where they lived for about 16 years, but their kids were growing up not English. They were learning Dutch and wearing wooden shoes and the things that the Dutch kids did, and they didn't like that. They were English, and so they asked for permission uh, to come to North America, the colonies at the time. There, there was no United States yet, and they came here so that they could have their church, their way of life, their religious beliefs the way they wanted. They weren't the only religious group to come to America to escape persecution in Europe. Maryland was founded as a Catholic colony. Pennsylvania was settled by first the Quakers and then because of commonalities they shared, the Mennonites and the Amish also moved to Pennsylvania from England and Germany. Rhode Island, Connecticut also settled as Puritan colonies, Maine at one time was attached to Massachusetts. Several of the colonies settled by religious groups, not all of them. Some of them were business enterprises. Georgia was a, a prison reform project to release prisoners in England and send them to the, what they called the New World. But America was settled by losers. Seriously, the people who came here had nothing else to lose. So they chose to come here to a wilderness, to a wild continent where there was absolutely no economy, no infrastructure, nothing prepared for them. And so either because of religious belief or because of a desire for land or political freedom in other ways or because they had a past they needed to get away from, uh, in England or later on, possibly, Ireland and Scotland and Germany and France. 
Uh, America really was settled by losers, and I mean that in the nicest possible way, because they were the hardest working losers in the history of the world. Some of them came here, like I said, for political freedom, some for property, um, uh, many for Christianity, some came by force. But when you get to the North American colonies in the 16 and 1700s, independence comes with a price, and that is the price of independence is independence. You have absolutely nothing that everybody else back home on the other side of the planet has everything in place. There's government and there's economy and there's businesses and there's farms and there's land. And here there was no support, no protection, no guarantees, no inherited titles or inherited land. The people who came here had to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But when you arrive on a strange continent with a hammer and nails and a musket and powder and a knife and a Bible and maybe a fiddle, and that's about it, and you have to make your life out of that, it's a hard life. It was so hard that you wouldn't do that if you had any property or any life or any title or anything at all back home on the other side of the ocean. All of their life was a battle, a struggle against elements, poverty, death was always only one plague or natural disaster away. They have to clear the land, plant the crops, build a barn, build a house, plant more crops, build a bigger barn, build a bigger house, make more tools so you can clear more land, so you can plant more crops. And that began in the late 1500s, really got rolling in the 1600s and all the way through just uh, hardly 100 years ago. That's just people moving across the continent. I don't mean that these people were sinning. It's not necessarily greed when, when it's the only way to survive. We cannot imagine the depredations and the sickness and the filth and the absoluteness of the edge of survival that they're on. But it created a culture of striving, of poverty-mindedness, that we don't have what we need and we have to work really, really hard to get it. It created a, a constant fight for more and an independence of lawlessness that in Europe everybody was working for their king and for their nation and, and when you got to America you were not doing what you were doing for your nation, you were doing it for your family and for God. This is why I came here. I didn't come for any other reason. I'm, not, I'm working for myself instead of my country or my king. All of the other reasons that life went on and on the other side of the ocean. When they didn't have a, a home and no government covering, they had to protect and govern themselves, and that led to a distrust of government, especially in the area of religion. Because the majority of the religious groups that came here came to escape persecution. And it would have had to been pretty bad that coming to America was better, was easier than staying where we're at. Those people had a severe distrust of government telling church what to do. 
how to worship, appointing uh, leaders in the church, and, and then just a, just a distrust of government in general. He saw it as very corrupt. And many of the people who came here had either been wronged by the government or had some sort of criminal record. And so they weren't fans of the government either. And it just it created American culture. Those mindsets became systematized and entrenched, and they led to, in 1776, an American revolution. And we created a country out of, out of these misfit losers that settled America. I don't mean losers as an insult. I, I mean it as a badge of honor. But they, they were the ones who had, who had nothing else to lose. So, 1776 on, we have the United States of America and this, this culture that grows. And then as more immigrants continue to come, once there was a United States, lots of people from Ireland and Scotland came to escape England because England was ruthlessly brutal to Ireland and Scotland. I would guess very many of you people in the room here have Irish and Scottish heritage in your family and your ancestors came to escape something. Poverty and a ruthless government. They came because they were the losers back home and they wanted freedom. They wanted a life and property and a homestead. And It was the Scotch and the Irish that came and they were the main pioneers of, of the West from the 1700s through the late 1800s. In 1830, the King of France sent a 25-year-old to America as an emissary, an ambassador of sorts, specifically to look at America's prison system, see what we had done differently compared to the European systems. Alexis de Tocqueville, he is 25 years old, comes to America, and he was not at all interested in our prison system, but he was fascinated by our culture. He said, there's never been a group of people like this. This is amazing. These are the freest and hardest working people on the planet. And they are also the most unhappy people I've ever seen. And he wrote two books five years later, one of which I want to read today called Democracy in America. And we'll start with this quote. It is odd to watch with what feverish passion Americans pursue prosperity, ever tormented that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. A 25-year-old 200 years ago says something that is jaw-droppingly prophetic. Is that not still true today? It is odd to watch with what feverish passion Americans pursue riches, property, ever tormented that they may not have chosen the shortest route to get it. They cleave to the things of this world as if assured that they will never die, and yet rush to snatch any that come within their reach as if they expected to stop living before they had enjoyed them. Death steps in in the end and stops them before they have grown tired of this futile pursuit of that complete happiness that always escapes them. It's pretty amazing. I'll read more sections of the book to you in just a little bit, but he says, he says, I see the most educated, wealthiest, freest people on the planet, and they are also the most unhappy because they always want more. Another quote from the book is, the Indian knows how to live without wants, to suffer without complaint, and to die singing. 
He noticed that the Native Americans lived a little different mindset. By comparison, they don't have much. But they don't complain. And they aren't striving. And they die happy. In no other country is the love of property keener or more alert than in the United States. What Mr. de Tocqueville, it's a shocking, 25-year-old makes these very astute observations and that they're still true because it's, it's American culture, it's a mindset. Uh, it's not just a time period in our history. It is, it is the way we think and I think it's because of how we were founded. Why? The people who came here came and they passed that down through the generations to their kids and their kids and their kids and here we are. In the 1800s, industrialization happened, the Industrial Revolution, factories and machines and steam power and then electricity and, and then gas and diesel engines and, and all of what became our modern world that's so different from, from anything before 200 years ago. Industrialization came and, and jobs. Before, before the Industrial Revolution, you didn't have a job. You had a, maybe a trade or a craft, but like 80-some percent of the people in the world farmed land. You just grew food. And then there was your shoemaker and your barrel maker and your wagon maker and, and the, the tinsmith and the blacksmith and those crafts or trades. But, but you didn't get hired for a job and paid wages. You, you earned your living. With industrialization and careers or jobs and, and a money-based economy comes some measure of freedom. I can choose what I want to do with my life and my career and my job, and that's obviously that's still true today. What we replaced with that was the old system where I'm a farmer because my dad was a farmer, because my grandpa was a farmer, because my great-grandpa was a farmer, on this very farm. You know, since, since the 800s, my family has lived on this farm in England, and my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa built this stone fence, and our house is 800 years old, and or my dad's a blacksmith because his dad's a blacksmith because his dad's a blacksmith. And, and there's tremendous security in that. That I know what I'm born to be and what I'm born to do. And I know where I fit in the strata of society. There's the kings and the aristocracy and all the nobles and barons and dukes and all of that. And then there's the, the peasants and, and the knights and, and all of that. Everybody just knew who you were because that's where you were born. And America's like... You know what, we're going to give you the freedom to be whatever you want to be. If you just work hard and you can choose your job and you can create your business and, and you can live the American dream. Well, that's terrifying. Because now I don't know who I am or what I'm supposed to be. And all of my livelihood's responsibility is on me. The young man has to make his own way or he'd get lost in the slum of the new economy and Choice and freedom and personal responsibility equal a lot of anxiety and fear. So in America, we threw out the belief in luck or karma that you're just born who you're born. And we threw out social classes, supposedly, and inherited titles or divine assignment that some people are just born to be rich in aristocracy and the kings and the rest of us are just born to be peasants. Uh, we supposedly threw out that idea. Instead of a king or a lord that I serve, and he supplies what I need, and he leads me, I'm responsible for myself now. And so with every new freedom, 
the end of slavery in the South, women's right to vote, the civil rights era, the sexual revolution, feminism, and now choose your own gender. There's more choice and more responsibility, which equals more anxiety and more social repercussions and more fear and more loneliness and more isolation for every individual person. Less structure, less authority, less boundary, less safety, and less rest. Back to de Tocqueville. Historians since de Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America have noticed that he, he hit on a social truth, a political truth, that plays out in every generation, not just America, but in, in every country, in every place, in every generation. And he said, the hatred that men bear for wealth and privilege increases in proportion as privileges become fewer and less, so that democratic passions would seem to burn most fiercely just when they have the least fuel. Translation, the more you have, the more hateful you are of the people who have just a little bit more. The more free you are, the more obsessed you become with the freedoms you don't have. It's called the de Tocqueville effect. When all conditions are unequal, think medieval Europe where we have extraordinarily rich kings and nobles and everybody else is a peasant serf plowing the land, literally living with their pigs and sheep in their house. They're literally living in manure. And that's 90% of the population. Come to America, we change all that. We don't have kings and nobles and serfs. Everybody's on an equal plane, supposedly. We know it wasn't true, but that's always been the American ideal. And we've been working toward that since then. But when the conditions are unequal, no inequality is so great as to offend the eye. Whereas the slightest dissimilarity is hateful in the midst of general prosperity. The more money you have, the more jealous and hateful you're going to be of people who have just a little bit more. The more politically free a people are, the more obsessed they become with the slight limitations that are still on them. And they make catastrophes out of tiny little things. He wrote that 200 years ago. Is that not what's going on the last few years in America? We can't have a rational discussion about what's good and right, much less true or false. Everything just has to be a riot and, and chaos and hate. The more complete the prosperity is, the more insupportable the sight of such a difference becomes. Hence, it is natural that demands for equality should constantly increase, even as equality increases. The more fair our government is, the more unfair people perceive it to be. That's the de Tocqueville effect. Lots of specific examples I could use, but I don't have time to go into them. Karl Marx said that political revolution always happens because the people get so oppressed and so poor and the government is so corrupt that the people have to rise up and have a revolution. That's historically, that's not true at all. All the major revolutions happen after times of prosperity. When people get more, it's not enough. We want more. And so they overthrow their government because they perceive that what they just got in the previous generation was great, and now I'm being limited from that same rise on the graph, and we're going to overthrow the government, and which never works. And what de Tocqueville 
prophesied here in his book is, is true. That democratic passions burn most fiercely when they have the least fuel. The more opportunity that we gain and the more equality we gain in politics or career or finances, the more we exaggerate the differences that remain. And that creates an unrealistic fear. It's an anger over trivialities. Minutia are exaggerated into catastrophe and chaos. The more I have, the less I feel I have. Prosperity results in dissatisfaction. Political equality creates revolution. More rights equals discontent. More freedom equals more stress. Greater safety equals greater fear. The more I have, the less I feel I have. It's true. Advertisers tell me, there's 118 things I have to buy today. Most of those I can throw in the trash. Like, I know, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. But there's probably 18 things like, yeah, I'd like that. But I can only afford three of them. But I will max out the credit card, max out the budget, overwork and overstress myself to buy six of them. And then be upset that I didn't get the other three or four. Y'all know it. Every person in this room is in the top 2% richest people in the world. And I doubt if any of you think you're rich. I'll bet we think there's some things we would like to have that we don't have when we spend time thinking about it. Instead of laying awake at night wondering how I can give more money away, we really spend most of our time thinking about what we want that we don't have or what we have that we might lose or how we had it better in the past or how we hope to improve our future. Back to Mr. de Tocqueville, our amazingly astute 25-year-old. In America, I saw the freest and most enlightened, that means educated, I saw the freest and most educated men in the happiest circumstances that the world affords. But it seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow and I thought them serious and almost sad even in their pleasures. When all the privileges of birth and fortune are abolished, meaning all that class rank system that was in Europe, when all professions are accessible to all, and a man's own energy may place him at the top of any of them, that's the American dream. Hey, if you just work hard, if you're intelligent, if you manage your money well, you can be anything you want to be. You're not limited by a class structure. You can rise to the top of your profession. You can become a wealthy person. Even though you started in rags, you can end up in riches. That kind of story has been in front of us for generations. A man's own energies may place him at the top of any of them. An easy and unbounded life seems open to his ambition, and he will readily persuade himself that he is born to no common destiny. Hey, I see that other people have a big house and go on lots of vacations, and they own a big RV. I can too. And you know what? You can. Maybe. Theoretically, you could spend your money on an RV. You could have a bigger house. You could have a fancier car. Theoretically, it's all true. It's all available. There's no limit to say this person can't buy that or, or whatever. But And so he says everybody becomes persuaded that I was born for that. That's going to be my destiny. That's where I'm going to end up in life. 
But this is an erroneous notion, which is corrected by daily experience. The same equality that allows every citizen to dream of those lofty hopes renders all the citizens less able to realize them. While it gives clearer vision to their destiny, it limits their power on every side. If everyone can do anything, then nobody can really accomplish very much that's different than anybody else. Hello? If there's greater competition for the positions at the top, you can be jealous of all the CEOs that, with their golden parachute business salaries and plans and all that stuff that the, the 1% gets. But theoretically, we could say, well, that could have been me. But if it could have been any of us, then there's that much greater competition for those positions, and there are only those positions. So his point is that we all think that because we're free to do whatever we want, be whatever we want, and make whatever we want, that we'll all end up at the top. He says, but no more, no more people are going to end up at the top than anywhere else. There's just a lot more competition for it. But because we thought we could, because we expected to, we're unhappy. Whereas the people who knew where they landed in the class structure of medieval Europe before this, they didn't have any hopes. They were happy being a blacksmith, living with a pig and a sheep in their house. This is my life. This is the way my family's lived for generations. We live in this house on this farm. We farm this field with this donkey. And they're happy because they didn't dream that there was something bigger. We call it dreams, but really it's lust. They have swept away the privileges of a birth class system but they have opened the door to universal competition. And the barrier has changed its shape rather than its position. When inequality of conditions is the common law of society, the most marked inequalities do not strike the eye. But when everything is nearly on the same level, the slightest are exaggerated enough to hurt. To these causes must be attributed that strange melancholy which always haunts the inhabitants of America in the midst of their abundance and that stress of life which sometimes seizes upon them in the midst of calm and easy circumstance. 200 years ago, folks. The guy says, America has abundance. They're always stressed out. You hear that? 200 years ago. This guy never met you, but he knows you. In America, enjoyments are greater and the number of those who partake in them is vastly larger. But on the other hand, it must be admitted that man's hopes and desires are oftener blasted, and the soul is more stricken and perturbed, and stress itself is more keen. So our American values of independence and individual responsibility and self-government, and I practice my faith, my religion, the way I want, without anybody telling me, what I should or shouldn't believe. Those are good, but the opposite side of the coin is that it results in rebellion and lawlessness and loneliness and fear and stress and anger and alcoholism and greed. What was survival became greed for more. What was born in a culture of necessity became a culture of I have to keep getting bigger 
We have to keep moving west. We have to keep spending more. We have to keep making more. And we have the, some of the tragedies of American history and American present. Peace, contentment, satisfaction. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious for anything. Anxiety is an American way of life. Nearly 20% of our public is on some sort of antidepressant. It's the highest rate of people in the world. And it's just white people. Blacks and Hispanics is like 3%. White people, it's like 20%. That's our culture. It's just fear and greed. 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 12. We urge you, brethren, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Lead a quiet life, work with your own hands, provide for yourself. What you make, you make. What you don't, you don't. Don't be jealous of the people around you that make more. Don't be screaming for the government to take their money and give it to you. Just live a quiet life. Work with your own hands. Be content. 1 Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drowns men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kind of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. How much destruction we do to ourselves to try to get a little bit more money. Some people, that's an honest, just, I have to work harder so they sleep less and work longer. Other people, it's maxing out the credit card and then all of that trouble and stress and bankruptcy and that goes along with that. Other people get wrapped up in the stupid pyramid schemes and get-rich-quick ideas and other people get wrapped up in a prosperity gospel that is a blight on the church. It's amazing. Paul says, you have pierced yourself through with so many sorrows. And you're like, yeah, those rich people, they do that. No, I'm talking to you. <laughs> I know way more poor people that are greedy than rich people who are greedy. Probably because I know more poor people than rich people. <laughs> there is nothing inherently moral about being poor. And there is nothing inherently evil about being rich. Neither group can judge the other as lazy and or greedy. Don't judge people who have more than you. You don't know what they do with that. Somebody who makes a million dollars a year, who gives away 20%, so they live on 800000 they give away to charity or church or tithe or however they do it, they give away 20%. You're like, well, they don't need 800000 I live on 50000 so they're obviously, they're wasteful, they're greedy, they're spending their money on luxury that they don't need. Are you giving 20% away of what you got? 
by God's math, they're doing better than you are. God measures generosity, not income. If you can't live on 20% of 50,000, you wouldn't live on 20% of a million. I promise you, what you give now is the same that you would give if you won the lottery. Don't judge people just because they're rich. You don't know. Just be content with what you got. Don't get wrapped up in all the stupid schemes and ideas. Or max out your debt and your payments. And we saw in Philippians, it's not wrong to ask. And it certainly wouldn't be wrong for you to take a job option if, it, if the Lord opens the door to make more. But the, I'm just talking about the desire, the striving, the discontent. Discontent is your, your meter. I have a very specific Harley that I want, that I cannot afford. We could afford the payments on it if, I, if we quit tithing and we max out our budget and don't do anything else with our money. We could, we could make the payments on this thing. But it would kill us. And I'm robbing God. And I'm working for myself. And if I itch, actually, if I saved up enough money to buy the Harley, I don't think my conscience would allow me to buy it. Because then I've spent all that time and effort earning that money and I'm going to spend it on myself. But I ask God nearly every day. Like, if you give it to me, I'll write it with a smile a mile wide. (laughs) (laughs) But until then, I better just be content with the bike I've got. Just be content. Drive a $10,000 car. You don't need a $30,000 car. If you can afford cash for a $30,000 car, then do it. Some of you are really hurting yourself because of your car payments. You need to repent. I'm serious. I know you've never heard a preacher say that, but your car is a sin. Not because the car is a sin, because you can't afford it. You're robbing God and your family because you're driving a nicer car than you should. There, there may be somebody who drives a $100,000 Lexus who is sinning less than you are with your $600 a month payment on your car because you have no business spending that much money on yourself at your level of income. You can drive a 20-year-old car. You can drive an $8,000 car. It will get your body to where you need it to go. Wow, did I just step in it there. I better back out. Let's go to Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts and be thankful. Yes, God, thank you. Thankful for our cars. We're thankful for our cars. Next one, Hebrews 13.5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Be content. Amen. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be like the world tells us we should be. We don't want to have an American mindset where that mindset is contrary to your word and your spirit. Lord, we confess that we are a greedy people, always wanting more, using other people to get what we want, buying more than we should be, buying, lusting and greeting after the next thing, the next purchase, the next trip, the next remodel. Lord, forgive us. 
We're spending our lives and our money on ourselves. We desire to obey your word, Lord, to just be content with what we have. To not judge those who are poorer than us as being lazy and not judging those who are richer than us as being greedy. Just being content with what you have given us and thanking you for it. We do thank you for the freedoms that you have given us in this nation, that we are freer and more equal than a people has ever been. We didn't start out that way, Lord, but you have continued to refine us. You have blessed us and you have, you have given us an amount of prosperity and freedom that has never existed before. May we not ever use that to blame each other, to fight each other, to use each other, to be greedy. Lord, especially may your people, the people of Christ in America, be lights of contentment and peace and thankfulness and joy and not stress and overworking and striving and grabbing and conniving and scheming. Lord, may we be, because you have made us the most prosperous people in world history, may we be the most generous people in world history. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your great gifts to us individually, to us as a church, to us as a country. Thank you. All things come from you. You are our source and our provider, the spring of everything that we have. We repent of striving, of overreaching with our budget, of robbing you and the people around us in our desire to have more. Thank you for your great patience with us, Father. Thank you for your conviction and your care, your generous care. We have so much to be thankful for and nothing to complain about. We bless your holy name. Amen.